Oh, it's so good to be together on the Lord's Day. I've been looking forward to this day since the last time we had this day. I'm thankful the Lord's given it to us every seven days that we can pull apart from the world and from our busy lives, worship the Lord together, and hear from His Word. Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 60 through 65 this morning, having taken that brief detour uh, last Lord's Day. We're back into the full swing of John 6 this morning. Lord willing, this morning, one more Sunday, and we will have finished out this wonderful chapter. I hope it's been as edifying for you as it has been for me. Begin reading in verse 59 with me. These things he said in the synagogues as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Father, help us now as your word is open before us. These are spiritual things that must be accompanied by spiritual means and spiritual discernment and appraisal. So open our eyes, Father, by Your Spirit and cause us to see wonderful things in Your Word that draw us to Christ, that cause us to worship as we should. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The teaching that Jesus has been giving throughout John chapter 6 has proven... That when the going gets tough, apart from God's sovereign grace, the unbelieving only get tougher. There has been an increasing hardening effect to the crowds in John 6. Remember, John 6 is occurring on the heels of and in conjunction with the feeding of the 5,000 men. When Jesus at the time was an absolute superstar in the eyes of the people. But as Jesus has accompanied now his miracles with his teaching. As Jesus has gone from truth to truth. There has been an increasingly hardened effect upon those who have not yet believed. And what we need to realize this morning as we come to this passage of Scripture is that none of us are neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ. 
There is no such thing as neutrality. Every time we say no to Jesus Christ is another time that we are lowered back into the furnace and the forge to be hardened even further. To the shock of these almost Christ followers, they find their hearts filling with more and more rejection, more and more animosity toward Jesus. We need to be reminded of that. Because we of all people living here in what has in the past at least been known as the Bible Belt, it's entirely possible to follow a Jesus of our own imagination. Or a Jesus of our own liking. And to encounter His words, even His hard sayings, and having encountered those, to reject those, and to suffer the hardening effect of that. These people, like so many of us have been at times, are excited about this new teacher. If he were alive today, they'd be buying his books. They'd be downloading his podcast. They'd be wanting him to sign their Bibles after his sermon was finished. They'd love that. But as his teaching has become clear throughout John 6, the less they like him. It's a heartbreaking reality, but we've seen it happen, haven't we? People who at first liked Jesus, but the more they learn of the Jesus of Scripture, the less they like what he has to say. Until at last, this teacher that they at one time had liked in one final act of cancel culture, they nail him to a cross in order to silence this man who had so much potential, but who was so problematic to their flesh. And it's not just these people, but it's all of us. We, we face a moment of truth. We face this Moment when we must either accept Him and all that He teaches or reject Him and all that He teaches. There's no third way. There's no other option. There is no middle path. There's no individual truth. And you and you alone must render a verdict as to how you will Respond to the truth that Jesus gives. I can't respond for you. Your spouse can't respond for you. Your parents cannot respond for you. Your friends and fellow church members cannot respond for you. We will all be faced with the moment of truth. Will we believe or will we reject? Those are the only two options. And that moment, brothers and sisters, is right now. It's not tomorrow. It's not 10 years from now, young people. It's not when you're out on your own and someday after you explore life for a little bit, then you'll make a decision as to what you will do with Jesus. That moment is right now for every one of us. There is no, well, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. There was a king, you'll remember in the book of Acts, a governor of sorts that said, Come back and we'll hear you another day. And there never was another day where he believed. 
Today is the day of salvation. Today is the moment of belief. Right now is the moment of truth. And so in this final section of teaching, Jesus, still with greater closing and more clarity, draws out the decisions that must be made. And I want you to see those two decisions this morning. Number one, there is the difficulty of decision for unbelievers. There is a difficulty of decision for unbelievers. Verse 41, if you'll go back in the text with me this morning, verse 41, we find that grumbling is nothing new for these would-be disciples of Jesus. In verse 41, they are grumbling about Him. Again, as we come to verse 61, they are grumbling at Him. The grumbling is intensifying. There is a growing hostility to Jesus. The introduction to these antagonists seems to be tinged with some degree of irony here in the text this morning. Perhaps even sarcasm to illustrate his point. We're introduced to these, peoples, uh, these people as disciples. And it's really clear to you if you read the rest of the story, they're no disciples at all. It's almost as if John is highlighting their rejection of Jesus with sarcasm by saying, these disciples who were so excited in the beginning are the very ones turning on Jesus. What is a disciple? Well, a disciple, in its most basic form, is a, is a learner, a pupil, of a teacher. In, in New Testament times, they would find a rabbi who taught what they believed and who taught what they wanted to hear, and they would absorb all of the teaching of that, that, that rabbi, and they would follow him wherever he went. Learning from Him. Obeying what He told them to do. Believing what He told them to believe. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at this and say, by that definition, these are no disciples at all. They're imposters. They're engaged, rather than belief, they're engaged in active Rejection of what Jesus is saying. And, and brothers and sisters, here we find a warning for ourselves. Here's where we must not look at this and say, those poor people or those foolish people. That There is a warning here for us. We can appear as whatever we want to appear as being, but it doesn't make it so. We can clean it up, dress it up, pretend for the duration of our life to be one thing and be absolutely void of the essence of what it means to be the thing we're pretending. It's true on an individual level. It's true on a corporate level. Just because you hang out a shingle and call it a church doesn't make it a church. Just because you call yourself a Christian does not mean you are necessarily a Christian. The churches in Revelation, five out of seven of those churches found out how accurate that is, didn't they? 
Jesus says to the church at, to the church at, to the church at, to the church at, I have something against you. And unless you repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. That is your status before me as a church. And brothers and sisters, we all know it, don't we? Whose opinion ultimately matters? God's and God's alone. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. God is the final arbiter of what is true and what is not. God is the arbiter of those who are His and of those who are not. And so these disciples are presented to us with, it would appear, some bit of sarcasm because they don't meet even the basic threshold of a definition of what a disciple should be. They are pushing back rather than absorbing the truth. The true test of a disciple is given by Jesus in John 8. Verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this, If, if, conditional, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. These people are not free. These people are bound in their sin. They are bound in their blindness. These people are scandalized by the necessity of Jesus Christ. It's not that they merely don't understand the the form of appropriating Christ. That is, to appropriate Him exclusively. To appropriate Him by faith to their own needs. It's not that they don't understand that. They are scandalized by that. You see, it's not that they don't understand. They are bothered by why they do understand. Many men in one fashion or another have remarked over the centuries that it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. And that's as it should be. Because the Bible is a life-giving word from a living God. Meant to cut across the grain of sin. Meant to cut across the grain of death. And to raise us to life by pointing us to Jesus Christ. These people are scandalized by their self-reliance. And their rejection of the exclusivity and the need for Jesus. They desire self-righteousness rather than external righteousness which can only come from Christ. We are so marred and we are so fallen in our sin. We need an alien, as R.C. Sproul was so fond of saying. We need an alien righteousness. One that is outside of us. To transform us. These people believe they can find it within themselves. And it is that truth that so offends them. That they must appropriate the righteousness of Christ to themselves because theirs is not sufficient. While we, in our culture and in our version of Christian vernacular, we, self-righteous, is that's a naughty word, isn't it? Have you ever said of someone, oh, they're so self-righteous and meant that positively? 
No. When you say someone is self-righteous, you are condemning them, aren't you? You're saying we want nothing to do with self-righteousness. And yet these people, they thrive on it. Were you to tell these people you're so self-righteous, they would, you know, tighten their tie a little bit. Walk a little taller, a little straighter. They love themselves. And what they think, fallaciously so, will lead to acceptance before God. And so it leads them to this point of rejecting Jesus and His teaching. Why is that? Well, Brian, you said it was because they were self-righteous. That's true. Well, Brian, you said it's because they rejected the exclusivity of Christ and their need to appropriate by faith the righteousness of Christ to their life. That's true. But Jesus diagnosing the difficulty that they are having to believe not in those terms those are merely the fruit of an underlying reason and the underlying reason is this they are outside of the spirit's work and the father's work of drawing them to the son that's why that's the reason And this is one of the reasons they say in verse 60, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? There's not one of us in the room this morning who doesn't read Jesus' words in John 6 that no man comes to the Father unless he's drawn. There is not one of us who have not read that with some degree of difficulty in our lives. That's a difficult statement. But it's a true statement. Jesus over and over has repeated this in verse 44. He'll repeat it again in verse 65. That God is at work in those who come to the Son. And if you haven't come to the Son, it's because you haven't been brought by the Father to the Son. Because no man is capable of, nor does he desire to come to Christ in and of himself. If you desire to come to Jesus and to embrace the teachings of Jesus, be sure of this. The Father has drawn you. No sinner wants that. No one who is not being drawn wants that. To put it in modern vernacular, These people who are saying this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? We would say it this way, right? Who can believe such nonsense? Who's capable? And the truth is that apart from God's work in us, no one is capable. So they're right. In asking the rhetorical question, and the answer being no one, they're partially right. Unless God convinces you otherwise. Unless God, by His Spirit, draws you. The truth of Jesus is so narrow, so exclusive, that it is impossible to believe it unless the Spirit of God Himself, by the Word of God, convinces you of its veracity and its truthfulness. There is no clever explanation of men that will suffice to convince you of the truths of Jesus. None. 
You know how I know that? Because all the clever attempts of men to convince you of the truths of Jesus change year after year. There's a new fad. There's a new way to do it. There's a new this. There's a new feel. There's a new look. There's a new this, that, or the other. And you, you, you will literally wear yourself out on the hamster wheel of new ideas. You know what will convince you? The eternally existent God Himself through His ancient Word convincing you. Period. End of story. They hear this and they are bothered. You mean it's not our self-righteousness? You mean it's not how many times we've been at synagogue in the last month? You mean it's not this, that, or the other? How many? No! It is not. Jesus, the omniscient Savior, at the beginning of this text, decodes their poorly concealed grumbling attempts. And He asks them the pointed question as He always does. Jesus doesn't waste time. Jesus does not beat around the bush. And He says, in verse 61, conscious of, He knows. Even though it's gotten louder, He knew what was in the heart even before it came out of the mouth. Go back to chapter 2, verses 23-25 through for that. He knows what's in the heart of man. And He asked this piercing question. Does this cause you to stumble? Is this truth so hard that you will stumble? Murray Harris in his commentary on John says that in Jesus asking the question, He is literally asking them, are you giving up the faith? Are you giving up the faith? Because of what I've said? And again, here is a dangerous, dangerous situation that we could potentially even find ourselves in. You don't like what Jesus says, and so you, while you may not do it with a physical pair of scissors in your mind, you cut that portion of Scripture out. So I don't like that. I'll ignore that. I'll skip over that. That's, that's one of the beauties of verse-by-verse exposition. You can't run or hide. It's going to get you. But it will also get you with the saving truth of Jesus Christ. So many give up the faith by just simply saying, that's not what I want to hear. That's not setting well with me. Another Commentator said it means to be tripped up, to be scandalized by something. And they are scandalized. The actual Greek word is the word from which we get our English word scandal. They are scandalized by Jesus' teaching. And they respond by grumbling. And so Jesus pierces their heart and says, Are you leaving me? Are you leaving the faith? Are you leaving the very Messiah from God over this? D.A. Carson writes, how men and women respond to this supreme scandal determines their destiny. Oh, you can leave, but you cannot leave and expect to live. If you stay, 
and believe you will live. If you leave and depart, you will die. It's that simple. And so these people grumbling, Jesus diagnosing, we might expect that Jesus, having heard the words, after all, if Jesus has been to, I can say this because I'm a product of more than one, if Jesus has been to most seminaries in, in the Western world today, He would have taken a, a class that, that teaches them, now done Jesus right here is where you repackage the message and you soften the blow a little bit. This is where you go in for the knockout punch, but you pull it just a little bit. This is where you don't lay it all on the line. These people are already scandalized. So Jesus, don't do it. And Jesus throws it all out the window. And rather than repackaging or softening the blow, Jesus reveals more truth. Well, you thought that was scandalous. Have you considered what I'm about to say? If you are scandalized by this, Jesus says, what then? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? You see, he cuts to the heart of it. Their problem is that Jesus is claiming to be God. And he is. He says, what are you going to do when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he came from? Right now is the moment of truth. You better decide what you're going to do with that because I'm telling you right now, it's coming. And if you think you're scandalized now, wait until you see what comes next. Jesus stands alone as unique among all of the other self-professed messiahs of his day. And there were more than one. (laughs) You read Josephus and Eusebius and other historians of Jesus' time. There were a plethora of false messiahs, people who would come on the scene claiming to be the Son of God, and we're not. Jesus says, I'm going back. I'm going to ascend. How many of your false messiahs have ever done that? Many false religions do claim that there is some sort of ascension component for their leaders caught up into heaven in some way, caught up to nirvana or whatever. But Jesus is unique because Jesus is the only one who claims to have descended and will ascend to. No other religion in the world has a God who condescends to humanity, takes on mortal flesh, and dies in their place, and is raised from the dead, and ascends back to His Father. Not one. Only Jesus. Might I remind you that when Jesus went to heaven, when Jesus ascended back to heaven, it was not an ethereal event. It was not a ghost (laughs) at a private party somewhere. 
Jesus was raised bodily. Jesus ascended bodily in front of a massive audience who saw him go. That is why the disciples can say in Acts chapter 1, Brothers, this same Jesus will come again just as you have seen him go. Perhaps Jesus knows that some of these people would be in Jerusalem for that event. It was visible, it was audible, it was public. Just like Jesus' earthly ministry was not hidden, it was public. It was out in the open. So, what will you say about me? What will you say about my teaching? I'm telling you, if you're scandalized by what you've heard, wait until you hear what you haven't heard yet. That event is certainly coming. It's coming at the ascension, but there is a sense in which it comes before the ascension. You'll remember Jesus and His language with the discourse with Nicodemus all the way back in in John chapter 3, who, by the way, gives a discourse on the moving of the Spirit and the Spirit's role in redemption, which is exactly what he's referring to here in verse 65. That no man comes unless the Spirit of God works. And so with Nicodemus, you'll remember that he says in chapter 3, verse 14, that if I am lifted up, some scholars say, well, what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here in John 6 verse 62 refers to his being lifted up on a cross. Okay, we can work with that too. He was ascended upon a cross. He was lifted up on a cross. And if the Jews are not only scandalized by what's coming in the ascension, proving him to be God, they will certainly also be offended and scandalized by him being lifted up on a cross. Because to the Jewish mind, there was no greater sign that God had forsaken you than that you would die by crucifixion. It was the greatest shame. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was lifted up and Jesus was lifted up both on a cross and in His ascension. And He is saying to them, does this bother you? What are you if it does, what are you going to say? What, if you think this is hard, wait until harder truths come. Now, the diagnosis of their heart. Jesus presents the truth and it's hard for these unbelievers to accept it. And now Jesus tells us why that is the case. To be scandalized by Jesus' words is to demonstrate that the cause of life, the very seed of life, the very thing that causes life, is not yet at work in you. And I say not yet because It's very rare that you find someone that upon hearing the gospel and hearing of Christ the very first time responds immediately. That's very rare. 
is a seed that's planted. And Jesus even uses that metaphor, doesn't he, in some of the parables. Seeds are planted and they're watered and they're prayed over and over time, God awakens the sinner. So take hope in that. For those of you praying for lost loved ones and friends, God's never done until He's done. While they breathe, there is hope. It just hasn't happened yet. And Jesus explains how it is that one could be so hard of heart and that one hasn't believed yet. And He goes on and He says in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. Who gives life? Spirit. Not a pastor who knows how to communicate clearly. Not your emotions. Not great stories about how someone else came to faith in Jesus. The Spirit gives life. And only the Spirit gives life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, that is us, that is what is of earth, that is what is human, that is everything entailed with that, profits nothing. There is nothing you can do to give life to yourself. There is no amount of faith that you could conjure up to give you life. There is no good deed you can do to give you life. There is no amount of knowledge you can obtain that will give you life. The Spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life, Jesus says. And when they find the fertile soil of the heart upon whom God is working, be sure of this, life happens. God not only saves whom He determines to save, God saves when He determines to save. And we hope in that, we pray for that, for those who do not believe, but understand this. Their lack of belief is not because you have not communicated it clearly enough. Their lack of belief is not because of something you have or haven't done in your presentation of the Gospel. Their lack of belief is because the Spirit has not yet taken maybe words you have spoken that were as true as true can be. He has not yet applied it to the heart to awaken them from the dead. There is no amount of evangelism training that will empower you to raise the dead to life. Only the God of life can do that. And so secondly, we see the only possibility of hope for the unbeliever, and that is it. That God, the God of life, acts upon them and in them to bring them to life. And again, we, we, we might ourselves read this and go, that is a difficult statement. Who can believe it? Well, it's okay. Because all we have to do is look at God. And to understand from His character and from His 
past that this is exactly what he does and this is 110% true. God is always doing that. When God breathes out, there is always life as a result. And if God doesn't breathe out, there is no life. And you're all sitting here living and breathing this morning because God did that. In Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God, the very Spirit Jesus mentioned, was moving over the surface of the water. And then God said, and it was. For six days, God said, and it was. God said, and it was. When God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and He made Adam, Adam was still an inanimate object laying there. And God did what? Breathe into his nostrils and Adam lived. The breath of God, the Spirit of God that hovers upon the water breathed life into Adam's lifeless body and man became a living soul. That's what God does when He breathes out. Life is the result. He in Himself is life. Ezekiel chapter 37, you'll remember that Great story, the valley of dry bones and the the prophet Ezekiel. He records in verse 1, He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Verse 7, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Sounds like Genesis 2 to me. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, Son of Man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as He commanded, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet. Boy, I would have loved to have seen that. And so would you, but you know what else I've seen? I've seen the Spirit of God breathe life into a young boy that knew he was a sinner in need of a Savior. Who before hated God in his own little ways. Who rejected God in his own little ways. Who didn't want to hear for whatever reason Now, seemingly absurd reason, but God breathed into me and God has breathed into all of you who believed the breath of life and you became living. So yes, Ezekiel would have been miraculous to see, but no less miraculous is the sinner who is awakened by the Spirit of God and the words of God to believe. Jesus spends an entire night with the great teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, in John 3, explaining to him that this is how it happens, Nicodemus. The words that I speak are spirit and they are life. And no man comes to the Father unless he comes by 
a drawing that comes from that Spirit through those words. And those who do have the Spirit of God enacted upon them, say with Peter as he will in verse 68, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of life. Your words breathe life. Where else are we going to go? Not to the mega churches. Not to the slick presenters. Not to the self-help. Not to the moral reformation of life. We go to Christ. You alone hold the words of life. How stupid it would be to go anywhere else. His words are spirit in their life, Jesus says. The words I speak to you, they are, they are spirit. They are life. Life that has been breathed into by God yet again. Just as God breathed into Adam in Genesis 2, so Christ becomes a life-breathing Spirit to us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, meaning Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Adam is a receiver. Christ is a giver. Their fleshly efforts, these people who are listening to Jesus Their fleshly efforts at appropriating God's Word had failed them because they had not had them placed within their heart by God Himself. By the Spirit of God. Religious, holy men may speak to the ear, but only God can speak to the heart. Only God can take it from the ear to the heart. Therefore, if the heart hears and the heart believes you can be sure of one thing. The Spirit of God is there. And He's working. And by the way, when He works, no man can withstand. If anybody thought they could stand up and be their own man, it had to have been the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul found out that when the Spirit of God goes to work on you, There's nothing you can do. You will believe. You will believe. Life is always the result when God speaks. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. (coughs) Leon Morris, in his commentary writes this, unbelief, unbelief is to be expected apart from a divine miracle. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have a loved one in your life right now who is yet to believe (coughs) and you just don't know why? Perhaps you're feeling some of the guilt. I, I didn't explain it well enough. I've 
been a hypocrite at some point in my life. I've, I've done some... No, 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 no. You don't understand. Unbelief is what we should expect apart from a divine miracle. We watch the news. And there's a whole lot of paganism that's just on full display now. Yes? Don't be surprised. Apart from the divine miracle of salvation and bringing life where there was only death, that's what you should expect. Don't expect to be pagans to be anything other than what they are. In fact, maybe we should rejoice that they're honest enough about who they are. And not pretending to be something they're not. That's worse. Because then you've got to unconvince them that they're not really the thing that they think they are before you can have a rational conversation. It's impossible, Morris goes on to say, for anyone to come to Christ unless the Father gives the grace to do so. Left to themselves, sinners prefer their sin. They just do. So did you. So did I. He closes by saying conversion, salvation, is always a work of grace. The grace of God towards us always provokes a sense of desire for, for His gracious words to be more present in us. And you know the feeling when, when God saves you, you just you can't get enough. You want the Word. You, you want to know Him. You want to think about Him. You, you want to be around people who like to talk about Him. You want to be around people who teach you about Him. You want to read books about Him. Listen to songs about Him. Because He's a life-giving power. You're like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15. Your words were found and I ate them. And they became to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I'm alive because God spoke. Jesus is not shocked at all by this, by the way. Jesus is not wringing his hands going, man, I thought that last miracle would have done it. What else can I do? What else could I offer them? What, what little gimmick could I throw in? How could I sweeten the deal a little bit? Sadly, that sounds like modern evangelicalism. But it certainly doesn't sound like Jesus. Notice what the text says. But there are some of you who do not believe, verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him down to the level of Judas. Jesus knew. You see, if Jesus' intention had been that everybody who hears me, they're just going to love me so much, they're all going to be saved, you've got to explain Judas. You've got to explain Pharaoh. Burden of proof is on you. Explain what that's about. Jesus says down to the level of the, the very 
human being made in my image that I created who will betray me. I know about that. I've known about that. That's part of the plan. So Jesus is not shocked or upset that some people haven't believed. Here's the real shocker that anyone believes. We ask the wrong question when we say, why, why haven't they believed? The real question is, why did I believe? The wrong question is not, God, why didn't you save them? The real question is, God, why did you save me? That's a miracle. And it's one that you'll never know the answer to because it resides only in the gracious mind of God that we will never plumb the depths of. Jesus from the beginning and thus because He had been part of this inter-Trinitarian covenant of redemption that spans into eternity past. He knew. He had a predetermined plan of redemption. He didn't come to earth willy-nilly hoping it would work. Can you imagine God sending His Son to earth for a plan that might work? That had potential to work? No, Jesus came to work. And to do the work. And to accomplish the work that His Father gave Him. John 17. And He did it. Verse 65. And He was saying, for this reason, I said to you, guys, I've explained this at least twice in the last 30 minutes. For this reason, I said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Don't be scandalized by what I've said. You shouldn't be. You don't understand, and they do, because the Father's at work in them, but he's not at work in you. You're at work in you. And therein lies the problem. The Father is at work in all who believe. You're here this morning. Stirred by belief in a living God. Rejoicing. With. Undeterred. Faith that Jesus has saved you. Rejoice brothers and sisters. The Father worked in you. The Father's fingerprints are upon you. And that's why you believe. Think about that. The God of eternity. The God who created everything. Put the imprint of His breath into your soul. His DNA now courses in you. The same God who keeps every molecule and atom in the world in its place touched you when you hated him when you fought him when you rejected him he overcame you 
and praise God that He has. Praise God that He has. Do you have room for boasting? No. The only thing you can boast of is that you provided the sin which made Christ's work necessary. Period. As the old hymn, Rock of Ages, says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Father, thank you so much that by your unexplicable mercy and grace to sinners, you saved any of us. It's not why, why didn't you save all of us? It's why did you save any of us? Chiefly, why did you save me? You are a powerful and magnificent God. As is demonstrated by your sending your own Son into this fallen world to redeem sinners. Oh God, may our praise be richer as we ponder these things. May we not be filled with scandal, but with praise. May we not be filled with confusion, but with confidence. So that our praise and our worship comes from a sure footing, knowing, being assured of who you are. And what you've done when no one else could have done it. So to you and to you alone for all eternity be all the honor and the glory and the might and the power and the praise as we read from Revelation 5 this morning. So bless your people now, Father. And Father, I would ask that if there is one here who has not believed, we know why. And we ask that the only one who can change that, you, would actively this moment draw them. Grant them faith. Open their eyes. Breathe into their soul life that believes the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things for your glory and yours alone. Amen.